Welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with science advisor Matt Moniz. Here to talk about the paranormal, as we are each and every Saturday night. Well, most Saturday nights. We missed last week's show. I was here, but the rest of the Spooky crew couldn't come in. And so I said, I don't think I can carry the whole show myself tonight. So we missed last week, but that's okay. There's, there's going to be some weeks coming up that we'll probably miss. Because it's spooky season. It's, I know it's only the end of July, but there's all kinds of stuff lining up. It's always spooky season. That's true. But there seems to be more stuff happening this year. I think it was a matter of, you know, everybody was locked down last year. Well, I mean, things got kind of okay by the time we got to the fall. But all the stuff we would normally do wasn't happening. So people are... You know, champing at the bit here to get out and have some paranormal adventures. And we'll have some things to announce as the as the weeks go on. Uh, but for, you know, right now, you know, there's not much on the docket. I, I think that uh, this year, I want to, uh, we, we talked about this before, I want to do the... Uh, the uh, Bridgewater Triangle show a little bit earlier this year if we can. And so far, so good. So far, the mosquitoes aren't to the point. Like Normally, by this time of year, oh, we're yeah. getting all kinds of, you know, warnings and triple cases e of Triple and... E, West Nile, all that stuff. So far this year, uh, we have been okay, and I think we're going to be okay. Uh, I just, I hope that it stays that way, and I hope that the weather plays along because since the mosquitoes aren't bad this year, I've got a feeling like, oh, I bet you now we get like a, a hurricane in September because that's usually when we get them, when we get them of significance. Yes. So tentatively scheduling it toward the end of September, early October, and uh, we will have more details as we get closer to it. Uh, I do want to target the last Saturday in September. That's the preliminary plan. So any paranormal groups that want to take part, keep that on your calendar, and we will uh, we will actually you know do the way we normally do it, where everybody that wants to take part writes into us. Uh, please understand that we need people who are experienced. It's not this is not a I've always wanted to try this. Let me go out and do this kind of thing. Uh, we need the people that are experienced because we're trusting them to be out there in the field, and they are representing us. You know, amongst, you know, so when they go to law enforcement, to the police, and they say, hey, we're going to be out in the Hockamock Swamp, they, that, you know, it's, it's part of this. So we need to make sure that we have people that we know and can trust and uh, that will do a professional job. So if you reach out and I say, eh, I'm sorry, this is not for you, don't be offended by it. Um, it's not, it's not for everyone. There have been times when we have been able to take some people that have never done it before and, and pair them with people that are experienced. And certainly, you know, we can try that if need be. But it, this is not a it's not a paranormal event like the ones that we put on where we do ghost hunts at historic places and everybody comes and gets pizza and we go and we look for ghosts. It's not that, you know, so it's it, there's there's an element of danger. There's an element of. I mean, I'm not trying to say that to be dramatic. No. But you're sending people out into the woods and to the swamp and all this kind of stuff in the dark on a Saturday night. And as we've said before, the biggest thing is that they're actually representing us, which is the biggest concern. 
that we don't want. We've got a pretty good reputation with law enforcement across the area. We don't want somebody going there and screwing that up. We've even had law enforcement come to us and say, thank you for letting us know. Right, because so many times people won't. And then when the officers show up to say, hey, why are you trespassing here? They yeah. say, oh, we're, we're here paranormal investigating. And I'm just going to guess that not everybody that uses that excuse is really doing it. Well, that and they don't want to waste their time chasing people for no reason. They got better things to do. Yeah. The the other part of that, too, is if the law enforcement knows about it, they can protect where you're investigating and make sure that, you know, nobody's kind yeah. of getting involved with that. Because you've seen that happen, you know, when we do different events, um, you know, the police will show up and just say, hey, you know, we're, we're going to just keep an eye out on things. And, we, you know, when we've done the Fearing Tavern and people have to walk across the... Right the street to the to the meeting house and all that. My favorite was the night that uh, we were all in the parking lot of the meeting house in Wareham yeah. and it was yeah. the end of the night yeah. and the police come flying in with the, you know, an officer comes flying in with his lights yeah. lights blasting and funny. starts yelling at me and I start yelling back at him and everybody's like, what's going on? Like, why is Tim fighting with the police? And it's just because it was my friend. Yeah. <laughs> he just, he just decided to show up and, and give me some crap and uh, it, 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 it was fine. But, and we've even had officers, you know, my favorite, we have had officers that have like, you know, stopped by because they want to see what was going on with the investigation. But my favorite was when we did the SK Pierce mansion and they forced us because this is when they were oh, still the, in the uh, process the, of renovations. Yeah. yeah. The they, fire department guy. They forced us to have the fire marshal on site yep. because they were worried that we were going to go over the fire limit. And so the fire marshal was just supposed to be there to observe and the guy took over the investigation. Like he like people paid good money to be part of this. He was we actually had to pay him out of our pocket. Uh, that that was something that I still to this day I don't understand why we had to have him on site. I've never had to have a fire marshal on site. I've had to have them come through. Yep. I've had to have them sign, sign off, off on the number of yep. people we can have. And I've had them pop in and make sure that we're following those rules. But I've never had a fire marshal that had to stay for the entire duration of the investigation. So I, I think that we just got fleeced. Yeah. He, he wanted to, you know, hang out. And that's exactly what he did, too. And he actually cut off people that had paid to be there and was like, oh, I want to try that. Oh, I want to do this. I, he was like the first one to volunteer for everything. And finally, you know, I think it was Jeff Belandre had to pull him aside and be like, sir. These people all paid money to be here. Let them have first crack at things, you know. And uh, thankfully, any further events we did there, they didn't require that anymore uh, because they've been getting the – I mean, the building is beautiful now. Yeah. They've, they've been doing so much work on it. We'll get to the point, too. I think we're going to try and squeeze in something down there um, before, you know, before the, the town starts giving them crap again and tell them they can't do anything. Uh, but I, I just don't know if that will happen before October just because so many people are – Heading down there, and we've got a whole bunch of stuff that we're doing as well. Now, this week on the show, uh, we're going to be joined in just a little bit by Christopher Balzano. Uh, of course, you all know him. He is the former content director for Spooky South Coast, my former co-host on the late, great Spooky Crossroads program. And now he has his own podcast, Tripping on Legends. And we're going to talk about, speaking of legends, who owns legends? Because... We have seen as content creation has increased, as there has been more 
uh, paranormal stuff out there. Uh, There's been a little bit of a blurring of the lines as to who has the rights to do what. And so, yeah, you can you can create a story that features, um, just for an example, a puckwudgie. And we'll get into this with Chris later because, you know, J.K. Rowling is his eternal enemy now. But you can create a story that uses a puckwudgie, but you can't then therefore say that the puckwudgie is your character and that nobody else can use it. And so we are seeing some of this happen. Uh, we have seen examples of where things, like, just as an example, this is something that weirded me out. One day I got a message from a friend on Facebook that said, hey, didn't you encounter shadow people at the the War Memorial Park in, in Bridgewater? And I said, yes, I did. West Bridgewater. I said, yes, I did. And they sent me this video. And they're like, I think this person is talking about your experience. And so there's a, a person who's creating, you know, a creepy YouTube video talking about paranormal activity in the Bridgewater Triangle and is talking about somebody who went to War Memorial Park and encountered shadow people and was talking about what, exactly what it was that happened. He was like, oh, the, my story has become part of the legend. Yep. And so that's cool. That's a, that's a cool thing to do. But also then you think about things a little bit and you say, okay, well... It wasn't that hard to find out that it was me. It wasn't that hard to be able to give me credit as the person that had it happen to. Now you put it on your YouTube channel that you are monetizing, that you are making that money off of for your own personal benefit based on just you telling stories that other people have collected. And so there's a lot of researchers who have been doing this for a long time that got all up in arms about that. But then... You kind of go back and you look at it and you're like, well, what do we do yeah. when we write a book? You know, I wrote a book with Chris about haunted objects. Some of them were our own stories, about half of them. And then half of them were things that we collected from other people. But don't you cite that in your your book? You have to, well, in, you, in publications but generally. We're just, we're just giving people's first names. So it's not like it's benefiting that person at all to have their story in the right, book. Right, but you're making that distinction. It is not yours. Well, but so do, so do the, the people in the YouTube videos. You know, they're, they're saying like, this person ha had this happen to them. So they are, you know, they are being upfront about that. But at the same time, you know, it's like, okay, well, then what's the value for? Are the people paying, uh, you know, for the book because they want to hear about the people's stories or because they like the way that we wrote them and presented them? Or with the YouTube videos... How is, is, I was going to say, how is that different than somebody just doing it with a different medium? Well, and that's that's the where the question comes up. And then the... So with the YouTube, it's, uh, you know, it's not so much that people are paying for that content i mean some of them do when they have patreon and all that kind of stuff but for the for the youtube version of it they're just creating a video that youtube is inserting advertising in doesn't care what the content is um i can't tell you that you know like youtube will work geographically so local advertisers can add there that's why you might see you know a local car dealer advertising yeah. on yeah. youtube so they they will insert these ads based on what they think the viewer needs to see but it's not really based on the content necessarily. It can be, but it's not necessarily based on that. So that's not, 
you know, based on the story that they're telling, it's based on the person who is putting out that video and, and the work that they're putting into that. So do then do they deserve credit for creating that video and putting the work into it? Probably, yeah. So it there's a lot of lines that get blurred. And I can imagine this is the same thing that happened, you know, however many hundreds of years ago when books started coming out and they were taking the oral legends that people had been sharing forever and saying, well, I'm going to collect all those and put them down in a book. And somebody probably said, hey, wait a minute. Like, those are stories that we've been telling. Now you're going to put your name on them. And and that still happens today. Look at the, the Charles Turk Robinson book, you know, the New England Ghost Files, taking stories that were in the area, putting your name on them and selling them. But but he did the work to go out there and find them and to research them and to interview the people. So, again, it's it's a very strange thing when it comes to the legends. It works fine in all kinds of other topics because here at WBSM, we take the news and we put it on our site and we sell advertising on our site. And so, yes, you're making money off the news, but we're making money off our platform that just happens to have the news on it. And so that's totally acceptable by societal standards. That's what people expect. Now, you can say things get a little bit muddled when, for example, the Standard Times has a paywall on their website. So you get three free articles a month to read. If you try to read a fourth article, a thing pops up that says you need to subscribe to be able to read this story. So now you are gatekeeping that information, which it's your right to do. It's your site, but that still uh, it doesn't doesn't sit right with a lot of people, and so that's why, you know, you see new organizations popping up, new newspapers popping up around the country, smaller publications, not these bigger ones, uh, but you see a lot of that. You see, you know, more coverage uh, from bloggers and more coverage from social media. Because people don't have that same access to the news. But nobody questions that. For some reason, it's a different story when you are putting... Like, I mean, I went through it with, the, you know, the launch of Midnight FM because we have a subscription service to get the archives. And people who had never listened to the previous show that I was doing and didn't understand that model were like, well, how come I have to pay to get a podcast? Podcasts are always free. But they're not always free. It's just become the expectation that they are because there are so many that are free. Now, I'm sure if you go back in time, we had the same issue when radio, Marconi first started, you know, right? Well, it wasn't just Marconi, but radio started. And people in publications were probably like, you're taking our our stuff and you're putting it out over the air for free, you know, because newspapers and publishers, you know, charge people money to grab the same information, same stories. Well, it's, it's, it's always... same thing with television. Yeah, you know, anytime a new media or means in which to impart information... And it's, it's not about the individual. So, I mean, I, again, I, I mean, I wasn't alive then, but I don't think that the newspapers were so worried about, hey, you're hurting us with the individual subscriptions, the people who were paying, you know, a nickel or 10 cents to get the newspaper. I don't know what it would have been back then. But, you know, whatever they're paying, it's not so much about them. It's when the advertising starts to go away. Right. 
because you know that's what's keeping keeping those things going afloat. I can tell you now. I mean, I I guess. Let me just talk about my own kind of um, widespread experience in newspapers. So I've written for a, for a couple of different newspapers. This is not me talking about one in particular, but usually one of the biggest money makers for newspapers. What do you think the biggest thing that drives revenue is for newspapers even today? Well, it's obviously, you know, advertisements and, you know, things like that. The biggest money driver for them? Obituaries. I was going to say that, but I didn't want to... Have understand. you ever had to put in an obituary for somebody? I mean, most people don't know uh, the ins yeah. and outs because it's handled by the funeral home and they just include it in the package. So nobody realizes exactly how much they charge for an obituary. It's all kind of worked into it, but they are very expensive. And the, <clears throat> the death notices, usually the death notices are free. You know, so those little tiny things that just say this person died and here's the arrangements. But when you want to have that little couple paragraph story where it talks about the person and celebrates their life, people pay for those. And the bigger the obituary, the more that they have paid. So you will see sometimes, you know, somebody has a little brief one with like a paragraph or whatever. And then other times people have one that's like a quarter of the page with like a headshot photo and then like yeah. a photo of them like at a Red Sox game and all that kind of stuff. And so it's, you know, the more money people will pay, the more space that they can get. And it's it's a good revenue model because everybody dies. So if people, as long as people want to continue putting that information in the newspaper, the newspapers will continue to profit off it. Now, the problem is the generation is coming up that, We'll never even crack open a newspaper. So there's no need for obituaries anymore. Now the funeral homes are including the obituaries on their websites and using that. I, I mean, I don't know if they charge extra if it's included like with the package or what have you, but those online obituaries are taking over the newspaper obituaries because the print obituaries don't make a difference to people anyway. They're utilizing, if they are sharing it, they're sharing it on social media or in emails to the family and distant relatives and everything using the newspaper obituary. So now the funeral homes have been smart enough to just say, let's bypass that and we'll just create our own online obituaries. So they've gone from having, you know, I remember like the online memorial pages yeah. where it would just say a person had died and it would link to the newspaper obituary and then have like a space for people to leave comments. Now they've just said, well, let's just put the whole obituary up on our site. So, you know, for an example, when Leanne Wilbur passed away, I never saw a printed newspaper obituary. There was a, there was an article in the Herald News, right. but the obituary that I saw getting shared around was the one from the funeral home. And so I think that that's kind of replaced a lot of what has been, you know, the bread and butter for the print industry. I don't work at the newspaper anymore. I haven't worked at the newspaper for a while. Um, I was writing some some Patriot stuff last year for them, and I don't know if I'll be doing that again, but I haven't physically worked in the newspaper uh, in quite a long time. So I'm not privy to all the things that are going on there, but I can tell you what I'm seeing from the outside, and I'm seeing you know, that it's, it's become homogenized. It's, it's the same newspaper that they're putting out in Taunton and on the Cape and in Brockton. And they're just plugging in a couple local stories. Uh, they're doing a little bit better now with the website than they had been doing before. But at one point, 
you know, there were four or five, and eh, I shouldn't say this because they're still this way, but they're four or five, six days behind on some stories. So that medium, at least in this area, is probably on its way out. And now we have New Bedford Light, which is a new organization. If you want to find out more about that, by the way, uh, you can listen tomorrow morning to Town Square Sunday with Jim Phillips uh, at both 6 a.m. and it rebroadcasts at 11 a.m. And as one of the segments of Town Square Sunday, he'll be talking with Barbara Rossner of New Bedford Light. So you'll find out what they're doing with this new, you know, nonprofit news organization. But it, it's just things are going away. And we've got Chris on the line I'll bring in Chris Balzano here to the discussion. Good evening, Chris. How are you? Excellent, excellent. How are you doing? Uh, doing well. I'm, I'm, I don't know how much of what we were discussing you heard, but I was talking about how you know newspapers are kind of going away as things are becoming more digital. And my question is, do you think that you know the what we have done in the past and what you were still doing of you know writing books and putting legends out and stories out in that form, do you think that that will eventually go away or is people's, you know, love for that medium going to keep it, keep it strong? Um, I, I think you'll always have the traditionalists who love to have something in their hand. Um, but <laughs> I think that those people are fading away even. I think that they're finding it in different ways. And so I, I, we're going to be a completely different uh, society in 10 years when it comes to that kind of thing. I think a lot of those people are now at the point where they're phasing out watching the news or listening to the news, reading the news. They're now getting it via podcast. They're now getting it via streaming something. Even my parents just tried to call me on portal a few minutes ago. Like it, it, it's going to change the face of it, which of course changes the quality of it because a lot of those old school traditional ways of doing research and of putting the information together and crafting something is now going to be replaced with quick hits and clickbait type mindsets, which is almost impossible to avoid if you're, um, if you're actually doing something with the intent of having people look at it. And, and, and one of the, the, the problems with this is because the research isn't being done by the people who are sharing the stories, uh, there is, there, there, there's license being taken with the way the stories are yeah. being presented. Not everything, they, they don't feel the need to be um, beholden to the actual story itself. They're putting in more dramatic storytelling and they're, they're really just about getting those eyeballs as opposed to sharing the legend as it, as it's been shared before. Yeah, and it's about, you know, and, you know, I, I back in the days of Massachusetts Paranormal Crossroads, right, I um, I put up a an old case of the Warrens, uh, the one that happened in Massachusetts. It's totally escaped me now, but it, I think it was like the case of the werewolf man is what it was unofficially called. And I realized it was getting a ton of traffic. And uh, and then when I looked at the, the stats and the I saw that people were, and this is well before the Conjuring movies. We're talking like a decade before the Conjuring movies. People were searching for Warren's cases, right? Or they were, you know, they were keywording Ed and Lorraine. So you know I found a way to put Ed and Lorraine's name into anything that I was writing whatsoever because that's what's getting, that's what would get people there. The difference is, is that I wasn't surrounding it by content, right? It was just like I put them in there to get the people on the page if they were keywording it. But my report wasn't someone else's stuff. 
with my comments on it and, and pushing that off as research. It was, you know, it was, here's this, and more importantly, here's where I got this information, and then, you know, my comments around it. So, I, I, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. I was, <laughs> and Facebook is great for this, these headlines um, on, the, on the, the news feed that you get, especially on the phone app, and then you look and it's like, wait a minute, this is literally just a story of people's tweets. And it's Joe from Montana. It's not even people who are necessarily authorities on a topic, but I clicked on because it said, you know, uh, um, <laughs> Tom Brady's latest comment gets, gets huge reaction, and really it's just a whole bunch of people from, from Twitter. You know, it, it's, so it's, it's an interesting way that we're now going to be consuming it. But we as folklorists and we as people who are, have an interest in the trends of the paranormal even – have to understand that change and move with it rather than just kind of like shake our finger at it. So, yeah, there's there's two schools of thought on it. One, we can avoid this changeover and stick to the traditional methods and sound like grumpy old bastards here complaining about the way that things are changing. Or we can kind of incorporate that. Now, the problem is it's very hard for you know, men in their 40s like us to be like, we're going to get on this new thing that all the kids are doing. Um, right. And, and, and in some cases, you know, the, the desire to create that type of content isn't there. I don't know about you. I'm not, I, I don't, I don't want to do a bunch of videos all the time when I have something to say. You know, I'm right. a writer. I like to write the things that I do and I spend enough time talking that I don't need to start making all these all these videos, but yet at the same time, you know, I, I just worked on a production with Stephanie a couple of weeks ago where the producer was telling us like, you're going to get left in the dust if you don't start jumping on this, you know, spooky TikTok trend. I'm like, right. I, I, I don't want to, I, it means nothing to me to have a million people following me on TikTok. I'd rather have 10 people, you know, listening to my radio show. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a burn. I, I know that we both upload our, our podcast onto the same network um, and, um, you know, the same uh, um, um, engine. And when I post an audio version of Tripping on Legends, I have whatever traction I have. When I do uh, the video version of my live show, right, so I do live show every Tuesday, try to do it every Tuesday. When I, when I edit that up and post it on the same network as a video, I get five times as, many, as much as much traction, five times as many views, you know? And so there's a temptation to, and sometimes I don't want to go live, right? Sometimes I want to just like sit down, record it the way I used to record it, things like that. But the fact of the matter is um, that's where people's eyes are. And if you, if you just want to fart into the wind and you just want to do what you do, um, you know, good, good luck being a T-Rex. But the, the more interesting thing is to say, how can I use this medium to communicate the same things that I was communicating before? How can I have integrity in it? So I'm the same way. Like, I don't like myself on video at all. But how can I deny five times as many people hearing the stories that I'm talking about? Um, or I don't want to be on TikTok. Like, I've got no desire to be on TikTok. My daughter constantly sends me messages, and then I click on it, and I watch the little video she watches, and then I'm like, oh, my word. You know, it, it just keeps showing other videos, and I'm like, where do I live? Um, but then I think, like, well, how can I use that? Like, how can I, you know what? What if I do 30-second legends? Like, the legends that I'm already talking about on a 30-second form. It's a fun new way 
to present the same information, which causes me to look at it differently, and it puts it out there. So, you know, it, it's, it's I, I would want the 10 million people because out of those 10 million people, maybe 100 will stay for the content. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, so, and, well, and stay for, for the better content. And so, you know, anything you can hook them in, it's just really hard to bounce the integrity of that sometimes maybe i'm just not utilizing it right and, and the algorithm hasn't catered itself to me but when i open up that app all i'm seeing is a bunch of really really stupid videos now some of them might be funny and i might laugh at it a little bit but most of them are just the same people doing the same stupid shtick so right. it's it's everybody has to do the video of where you know there's a little kid with the big head talking to the dad and I've seen, you know, 500 different versions of that. It wasn't funny the first time, and now you're all doing it. So it's becoming <laughs> planking 2.0. Yeah, but at least with that, it, it was, you knew as that happened that it was like, you know, any of those trends that have happened over the years that have gone viral, you know that they're going to just fade out. So you're like, okay, people are going to do this for a couple of weeks, then they'll move on to the next thing. Or like now they do the the song challenges where like a song comes yeah. out and you got to do a dance or whatever. And like, you know, those are going to fade out. But there's people who are just one trick ponies making the same video over and over again with slightly different scripts to them. And like people are going crazy for that. And 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 listen, I, I, I get it. I understand that. You know, when you have a formula that works, you're going to stick with that formula. But also at the same time, like, don't tell me that you're a creative person when you're just rehashing the same joke, either your same joke over and over again, or you're just copying the same joke everybody else is putting out. L let me just ask you this. Who is the most annoying person when they're telling a joke? The person who just keeps going and repeating that same joke and just kills yeah. the joke. And then you're like, okay, right. it's not funny anymore. And that's to me when I open up TikTok and I look through it, like that's what I'm seeing, a bunch of things that just aren't funny anymore. Rewind, play, rewind, play, rewind, play. <laughs> yeah, and so, you know, it's there, right? I mean, you can't deny that it's there. You can't, um, so you can, you know, you can either A, decide that that ain't your audience, Right. Like, you're going to get just get caught in the shuffle. And quite frankly, you know, 13-year-old girls is not Spooky South Coast's primary demographic, right? Um, or you can go in and, like, do something that champions that, that doesn't do that, you know? Uh, it, it's really, I mean, it, the fact of the matter is this. And over the last year especially, I've really, maybe two years, I've really hit this hard. Um, and I was thinking about it when I was watching the show Evil. That is kind of the focus of our show this week. It is the youth that are driving the paranormal right now, right? Like, we can all be 40-year-old people in our black shirts, like, going out and doing what we're doing. In terms of the stories that are being spread and how those stories are evolving, um, it, is the, it is the people who are young who are driving it. It is social media. It is social media who is, who is creating people like Hookmen and who have taken the ideas like uh, um, um, Shadow Men and gone a different place with them, um, or Bloody Mary, the classic part, you know, the classic legend. Um, they're driving it. And so if we're documenting that and we're documenting the way things are changing, I'm not talking, you know, 
this this tavern is haunted and, and we go in and we investigate it and we put forth our evidence and that kind of stuff. I'm talking about the stories and how the stories have changed over the years. Um, you, you kind of have to keep an eye on that. And if, and if you really have a dedication to this kind of thing, like I do, for example, it would be, I would be remiss. It would be as if, you know, um, at some point, <laughs> at some point, you know, uh, um, Joseph Campbell said, there's nothing, <laughs> there's nothing important in Star Wars because it's new. Um, so, you know, it's, it's an unfortunate thing, but if you take a step back, it's actually kind of an exciting thing because, you know, puck wedgies are a real good example of this. Um, like I said, Bloody Mary is a really good example of this. The idea of watching stories change in real time almost, you know, how something that you've held on to or something like a puck wedgie that is five, 600 years old in the mythology of everything um, can change dramatically over the course of weeks. Um, and you can actually track it and you can track people who have said something and then it's changed the needle of that. So, you know, that's kind of interesting. It's frustrating if you don't want to get on the next new technologies. And I know very few people who do this, who have a lot of spare time to learn TikTok, to learn, you know, even Instagram. It's like, I put something on Instagram and I'm like, haha, and I pat myself on the back. And then I look at my friend and, and they have all these effects in them and letters and it splashes. And I'm like, Wow, who's going to look at my picture? I don't even have, you know, I'm not even hot. Um, but you got to do it, you know, I, I think. And I think you got to definitely keep an eye on it because the way my kids consume the paranormal in terms of BuzzFeed Unexplained, in terms of I can't even remember the idiots that they watch that do investigations who are like, you know, 17 years old. Oh, yeah, it's like, it's like haunting with Chad and things like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Chad, I think, yeah. Oh, I don't know. I just, I was making that up. No, it is something like, no, it's Cody. It's Cody something. (laughs) Um, uh, There is a Chad. I think Chad's his best friend. Um, That's how they're they're getting it, right? And so those are the people who are then going to be, in theory, those are the people who are then going to be contacting Spooky South Coast or you or Moniz or me saying, I had an experience. Let me share it with you. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on. No, they're not. (laughs) <laughs> in theory i said no not a, not even close those people don't even know that we exist they don't care that we exist the only people in their world are the other people that are doing exactly the same thing that they are no what i'm saying is the people who are who are watching that when they then have an experience in their hometown or in their house they're gonna want to know you know it's um it's years ago before I ever watched an episode. I remember the kids in my classroom saying, "When you go out ghost hunting, because um, that's what they thought I did. If you go out, when you go out ghost hunting, do you bring a shotgun full of salt?" And I'm like, "Where the hell are you getting that idea?" And it was from the TV show Supernatural, sure. right? Yeah. Um, and so the, the way that the way that the per, someone who's going to report a haunting that they know of to you. Is going to be cre- is creating a new filter that is being formed by TikTok and by Cody and by Chad and whoever, whatever other and you know BuzzFeed uh, Unsolved. You know, it, so we need to at least understand if if we want to be able to bring some kind of integrity and understand how they're approaching what they think they're seeing, we need to consume that stuff the way that you take medicine, like just watch it with your nose pinched. Yeah, well, okay. All right, I'll say maybe some of those people might contact us and maybe maybe some of the that stuff will kind of bleed through. So here 
here's where I've seen the change. And I know that a lot of this started happening with the pandemic and people trying to create content without actually being able to go out and do things. So we started getting a lot of these, I'm going to stand in front of a blue screen or sit in my bedroom type videos. And they're just scouring the internet, looking for the information and looking for the stories. Now, you and I yeah. have talked about it for years you know, when people are sharing the stories and sharing the information, that's great. We love that because it's keeping the stories, it's keeping the legends alive. But we've yeah. also noticed that the the traditional way of doing it, well, I shouldn't say that because the traditional way of doing it was probably just to tell the story and not worry about the facts. But, you know, five, six, ten years ago, you would always cite where it was that you got that information from. Right. Now they've just become the fabric of the storytelling so much so that somebody could talk about your life and your personal experience and never mention your name. And I don't know I don't know if that's a good thing or I don't know if that is just the the era that we live in now actually becoming part of the bigger storytelling of legends. Well, it's about uh, you're they're turning it into about them, not the story anymore then. Yeah. Well, not well, necessarily. I, you know, no, I mean it's there. You're there for me. I am the center here, and from what I'm, I've never seen. Well, I, I know what TikTok is. Never seen a single video, and don't plan to watch any. It's about them. There definitely is some element of that. It's it's people are here to hear how I tell the story, right. but. Yeah. But I also think, like, for, for some of them, a majority of them, I would say, is that it is, you know, the story does take the precedence. Um, but, Chris, I mean, in the ones that you've seen, what, what do you think it's more of? Is it more about the person telling the story or more about the story that's being told? I think there's a, a lot of it is, and, and once again, as a, as, and you have, you, you have a teenager, um, I've got two teens, you have, again, it's about the understanding, right? So I have one. my kids. Is she a teenager? I thought she was like 23 now, 24. No, I have one that's in her 30s. I have one that's 16. Oh, congratulations. <laughs> I didn't know that. I need to catch up. Yeah. Um, so, so we, um, my kids watch, my son more than my daughter, because my daughter is more, much more of a TikTok consumer, and my son is more of a YouTube consumer. He watches um, videos where... Um, it's people watching videos. Like he watches videos of people watching other people's videos and comment, commenting on it, right? Um, and then sometimes it's a video of somebody watching a video of somebody watching a video, and that this is entertainment for him. So he's watching some guy play a video game, and another guy is commenting on how that guy is playing the video game. Um, and it's the same thing with the paranormal. He watches videos, and I'm just going to call him Chad. He watches Chad watching a video of Cody. And that's how he consumes it. And so he assumes that that's the way the world is, right? So we're watching a movie the other night, and he's commenting. And I notice he's commenting in, in the same way that the people in the videos comment. Like everything's got – as soon as there's a, a moment where there's no one talking, he's got to throw in a little, like, zinger. And, and I had to tell him to shut up, right? I was like, dude, <laughs> like this is real life, right? So when, when, when Manui when yeah, I didn't, about, I didn't subscribe to your channel. Be quiet. <laughs> right. I did not hit the... And it's funny because my daughter talks in terms of, like, make sure to hit the button to subscribe. And I'm like, we're eating dinner. I don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> um, it, it, but that's how he consumes it. And that, and, and, and so I think a lot of those are um, the mistaken idea of kind of like what Moniz was talking about. 
the story becomes about them and what they think of the story as opposed to the legend itself. Um, but that said, I don't think that that's necessarily 100% new. So before I came on, I you, you know we were talking about who owns what, right? Who owns ownership and things like that. And the difference between a real experience and a, a legend, right? So I went to college at Emerson, and I was in Charlesgate, the famous Charlesgate Hotel, which is, yeah. I always say, one of the most haunted buildings in Boston, right? And in that building, there is a legend of um, a little girl who died in the elevator. And you can hear her crying when you're in the elevator. You can hear a ball bouncing because supposedly she bounced the ball and it went under the elevator and crushed her. The story is, is a great legend that can't be backed up. And that's been told for now generations, right? And that's a legend. So fast forward to, I don't know, 2000, maybe 1990-something, and um, Haunted Massachusetts comes out. And I'm going to put the author out there because I don't even know if she's around anymore, but Sherry Ruval writes this book, Haunted Massachusetts, right? And, in, and she does, has a whole chapter on Charles Gates. And in that chapter on Charles Gate, she talks about that ghost, right? You can't not talk about Charles Gate or talk about Charles Gate and not talk about the little girl. She then goes on to present my personal experience in the chapter as well, that she got off Massachusetts Paranormal Crossroads, right? With no attribution? No permission. Nope, not at all, Right. Um, I confronted her about it because remember the day when you could actually con- like get in touch with an author and talk to them, uh, and and it, it was it's a hilarious conversation about how she had just gotten a divorce and her she had back pain and stuff. And I'm like, what are you talking? about? You stole my story. Like I'm an aspiring writer, and you just stole one of my personal experiences. Like now when I tell that story, I sound like I'm quoting you. You know, that's crappy, right? So. I'm not so it's kind of like our own personal things we have ownership in if we put them out to the world um we can expect that they're going to be changed and but really that's kind of our life right um but because we put it in a in a, in a, in a public forum we can expect that it's going to be nitpicked and hopefully it's best we're cited somehow but that legend of the little girl in the elevator you know not so much that's 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 free reign for anybody so fast forward a few more years I'm taking uh, a ghost tour of Boston. This was actually before I moved down here to Florida. I'm taking a ghost tour of Boston. And the tour guide is telling me my personal story. Like he's literally <laughs> telling my story and telling it wrong, right? And, and, and you have that moment where you're like, well, I, I could totally correct him on this, which, you know, is kind of a dickish move in that moment as he's telling the story, or I can sit back and appreciate like, oh, wow, this story has changed. Once again, no credit to me or anything like that, but it's kind of like you realize that when we, any of this stuff, when we put it out into the, um, out into the, the world like that, it's going to come back a little bit changed. And the best we can hope for is some kind of recognition, which, you know, the best people do and the, and the, and the most people don't. And and we've we've gone through uh, quite a bit of that over the years. Uh, you know, you talked about these reaction videos, <clears throat> and yeah. 
there was, I remember there was a time when I, I don't know if somebody pointed it out to me or if I stumbled upon it. Somebody probably pointed it out to me because I don't know how I would have been watching a video like this on my own. But there's mm -hmm. some some video of a guy who, you know, gathers all the best paranormal evidence out there and like strings them all together into episodes. And he had Moniz's Waverly Hills footage in there. Yeah. And it's like, oh, cool. Like now another 50,000 people have seen this video and it was it was done the right way, you know. It had the on-screen credit that said, you know, Spooky South Coast, whatever, and you know, I think he might have even mentioned that, you know, Matt Moniz from the Spooky South Coast radio show, you know. So there, it was it was kind of handled the right way. Now we live in a time when people could just throw that up there on their own channel and not have to mention where they where it came from, and yeah. and, and and I wonder how much of this is just a part of that, you know, nobody stepped in at the beginning to try to put these safeguards in place. So they just don't see the need to do that. You know, that maybe if YouTube had said, if you're going to take a part of somebody else's video, you need to give them credit for it. Um, or, you know, like the same way, like if I go and I upload a video to YouTube and I use licensed music in it, within five seconds of the upload finishing, YouTube right. alerts me and says, you've used licensed music, monetization is turned off. Like, that same thing should be happening when they're utilizing the stories that we tell. I was t talking before you came on. You you remember um, our friend Jill with Claire the Doll. Yeah. With, and, and so Claire made it into my book, and I wrote the story kind of the way Jill presented it to me. And, uh, and if I remember right, I think she sent it all over in an email. And I asked, like, follow-up questions, and I took what she said, and I kind of put it into prose, and she was fine with the way that everything was presented. We put it into the book. And then there's this video that somebody pointed out to me where there's this woman telling stories for, like, 14 straight hours on a YouTube video. And one of those stories is this story, but it's basically the verbatim of what was in the book because <laughs> Jill put the email up on Reddit. And so she's like, she says at the beginning of the of the story, you know, this is the story of Jill, who is the person who had this experience, but then goes and tells the entire story in the first person because she couldn't just take the information that Jill had posted and crafted her own story around it, you know, her own writing uh, to present the story. Instead, she's just reading it word for word. So now people by default it comes in first person if you're reading somebody's personal email and and but the problem is is she doesn't differentiate so now a person who isn't paying attention enough right. hears all these stories and they say oh well oh, this person's had a lot of stuff happen to them i'm going to keep following their their channel because you know they've got all these great stories that happen to them not realizing that they're just telling you stories that you could go hear somewhere else but then you go and you look in the comments too and everybody's like i'm so glad you're back i missed your voice telling these stories and it's like, oh, so that's oh, what, wow. yeah, that's what is, that's what they're paying for, you know, or that's what they're coming here and, you know, bringing you in the ad revenue for because they like the way that you tell the story. Okay, but still, you need to acknowledge where and how you're getting those stories. Well, uh, you, you also wind up having this happen in, you know, real time in real places. I mean, not to, in a sense, call you out, but you and Andy and, um, Belanger, you guys all stepped out and filled out auditoriums and told ghost stories. I mean, people have gone we, out and told quote unquote ghost stories for but, but you know, also, ever since we've had campfires. Being aware of how that goes, um, we told those stories. I mean, first of all, 
I'm just being devil's advocate. Sure, but first of all, those stories were told in a, because we are all aware of these pitfalls, those stories were told in a first-person story um, for the most part. So it was, you know, Andy talking about, you know, I encounter, you know, here's how I heard the story of Nellie Vaughn. And in kind of walking you through that process right. uh, with myself, you know, Lizzie Borden. And then if it was a story that we were telling, you know, we would always say, like, according to this report, and then this report said this. And we actually started to get to the point where we realized we were doing that too much and we were taking away from the story. So, like, then we would say, like, you know, the legend goes rather than citing, like, which book we read the legend in because the legend was the same from book to book. Yeah. You know, like, things like that. But still... We made that effort to present it in a way of saying, like, the we're telling you stories that we have heard. We are not telling you things that have happened to us unless we specifically tell you that it happened to us. So that's yeah. I, we tried to have that distinction. I, I confronted Alan Menken about this um, uh, a while back. Uh, for those who don't know, Alan Menken does the show Lore, um, which is bigger than either of us, right? Like, we're in the shadow of Lore now. Um, and I people tell me like, why aren't you more like Laura? Um, and and it's it's his his very straight flat response was uh, to cite you uh, interrupts my narrative. It interrupts the storyteller part of what I'm doing. Uh, but if you pay and you become a Patreon, you can get the show notes and you'll see that you're credited. I'm like, well, no one's gonna friggin' pay to find my name, like you know. Right. Um, but it's the idea of. But thanks when for making that money off my story, though. Right, but thanks, yeah, th- thanks for you know. I, I love your uh, your Amazon Prime show, and so does my daughter more than my show. What's what's up with that? Um, <laughs> and she's on your show. <laughs> I said she's on my show, right? Well, I'm um, just I'm just going to hold so, you right there, Chris, not to interrupt your thought, but we're up against the break. Yep. So we'll pick this up when we come back on the other side. Uh, and we'll take your thoughts and comments as well, too. 508-996-0500. Maybe you've had an experience like this. You can share it with us again. 508-996-0500. When we come back, we'll talk about what happened to uh, Aaron Cadger this week and how that kind of kicked off this whole discussion. And we'll talk about what happened to Chris in the past as well. Back with more Spooky South Coast in just a bit. Science advisor Matt Moniz and our guest tonight is Christopher Balzano. We are talking about, well, we're going to get into it a little bit more than we have even in the first hour. Who owns the legends? And that's what kind of came up, Chris, in the conversation that we had on Facebook earlier this week because Aaron Kaju had posted something, um, the, an email that he got. And I'm going to read it to everybody here. 
Uh, Aaron now, just to be fair, you know, in case anybody goes to Aaron's Facebook page to look for it, uh, he did take it down because he decided it's better not to give this person any attention. But we're going to give them some attention right now. So this comes from somebody named Polly. And here is the email. I'm going to read it to you word for word, except there's a, 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 a word I got to take out. So I enjoyed your document. Now, keep in mind, anybody that doesn't remember, Aaron Kadju is the co-director of the Bridgewater Triangle documentary. And as part of that, he created the website for the documentary and the logo that's used both in the film and in the merchandise that is related to the to the film. And he had the blessing of Lauren Coleman, who created the term the Bridgewater Triangle in his book, Mysterious America. He had the blessing of Lauren to call the documentary that, to put out this merchandise, to have this logo. And he copyrighted the logo because so many people were stealing the logo thinking that, you know, hey, I can just grab this cool Bridgewater Triangle image. Um, so he owns the rights to that logo because he created so it. So it's a copy mark copyrighted trademark yeah i'm not sure i'm not sure exactly what the process was for it if it's if it's a copyright or a sales mark or a trademark i don't know all the differences between the three legally but it's 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 one of those and so here's the email that that came in to him from this poly person so i enjoyed your documentary and i hope you make more however upon checking out your website i see you were trying to be home of the bridgewater triangle brand you can knock that right the f off right now you don't own the Bridgewater Triangle, and you didn't coin the term. The Bridgewater Triangle is not a brand. You will cease trying to trademark a public place. Court or other action is not out of the question. I'll give you a week to remove any reference to a Bridgewater Triangle brand. Besides this issue, you made a good movie and keep up the good work, but stop being a scumbag about the branding thing. You, are, you can be absolutely sure I will be in touch about this issue further. Do not ignore this demand. First of all, who the hell are you? <laughs> like the the tone of that email first and, and and i've noticed this tone in a lot of things lately like nothing can ever just be like hey i want to have a conversation with you about something here's yeah. what i think it's all you better do this right away court is an option okay well take him to court see what happens um because not only will you lose but you're paying his legal fees too and then you know, the, the other part of this, uh, I will give you a, re a week to remove any reference to the Bridgewater Triangle brand. His brand is, what he's talking about with his brand is the brand that is related to the Bridgewater Triangle documentary. So basically, that is to protect if anybody's trying to sell a t-shirt with the logo that he created on it. Right. And so this kind of... And, and you know what, and I don't think that's even really like advertised on the on his facebook or on the website of no. like don't steal this so i i I'm, I'm i wasn't even sure when i read that if she was referring to uh the specific logo or just holding himself up and i think that that people in general have this misconception holding himself up as the bridgewater triangle guy so you know uh whether she was assuming he was doing that by having this website so it, it's it's even but more. It's important to note the website is not BridgewaterTriangle.com. It's BridgewaterTriangleDocumentary. Well, hold on, because Aaron just sent me a message, and it makes it even more ridiculous. Her argument is even more ridiculous because he does have a website called BridgewaterTriangleBrand.com that is just the 
home of the Bridgewater Triangle brand, which is the logo merchandise. So that's the name okay. of the website that he's selling the merchandise on, which to me is just even more obvious that the Bridgewater Triangle brand is just talking about his self-designed and created and copyrighted logo. So, like, it, it, I'm sorry. How dare you McDonald's use that, you know, double arches because I want to talk about hamburgers. I, I'm, I'm sorry, Polly, but your comprehension of what the word brand means is your issue here, not Aaron's work. So, but let's first take a step back and, and amaze, be amazed at the fact that John Horgan didn't have the right to those websites to begin with. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> uh, I, I'll never forget the day that he told me I have a two million dollar portfolio in in website URLs, and I was like, "But only right, right. if only if people want them. Like a URL <laughs> isn't worth anything if nobody wants to have it. You know how many URLs <laughs> I've bought over was, the years." If I'm not mistaken, he was the narrator of that of that documentary. Too, he was, right? yes. Yeah. So. So. <laughs> anyway. And then he turned his back on all of us. But anyway, that's a different story. Uh, so, and as and as Aaron is is saying here, he's just sending me a message that he owns the logo. He licensed the logo to the documentary because he created yeah. the docu. He created the logo. So, uh, but anyway, there is you know that tone is not a surprise. That right. tone is how most people are now addressing these type of things that, you know, you don't own this. You don't own the right to talk about this. And we are seeing that, you know, it kind of goes both ways because we, we, the last spooky South Coast we had, we were talking about the Lizzie Borden house mm. and, and the new owner of that and how, you know, from what we're hearing, you know, they think that all things Lizzie Borden now go through them. And that, you know, you can't own that legend. And I haven't even talked with you about this, Chris. I don't know how much you've been following that story. But how much can you own the Lizzie Borden legend? Sure, you can own the house. And you can own the, you know, the the, the rights to anything that happens in that house going forward. But that doesn't give you the story up until the point you sign those papers. Right, right. And and once again, um, all of that is is part of pop culture. Uh, it's out there. It's out there for people to. And long before that, I mean, you know, the the story of Lizzie Borden, the images of Lizzie Borden. So, I mean, some of those. Um, have, I mean, all of them. The originals have to be over a hundred years old, right? So, I mean, the, but even just the idea of Lizzie Borden as a character, as a person, is is can't be owned, right? I mean. Nor, I think, can um, stories that happened at Lizzie Borden's house that are personal. Well, and, and, um, and that's kind of the, the, the goal is that, you know, anything that does go on there now, like they, they want to have a, a hand in that and they want to have a piece of that and be able to utilize that. You know what I mean? Which, which is, is fair. Like, as I was saying, like we do that with our events where we say, you know, you sign a waiver that says we have the right to use any of the stuff that you get in for the promotion. Right. But it, it it's not intended to, and I'm sure with the Lizzie Boyden house, it's the same idea. It's not intended to, you know, profit off what it is that you got. It's just to help keep in perpetuity pushing what it, what it is that happened. How is that? And any, I think the, I was going to say, I how is that any is different that, than, sorry. Oh, <laughs> no, no. Uh, Matt, you can talk. All right. Uh, how is that different than going to, say, like a baseball game and, you know, you were there watching the game and then going out and commenting about what you saw? 
do, do say it's a Red Sox game. Do the Red Sox own the right to your well, to your view of what you saw in it, the game? It depends on how you're presenting it. So you can't, you know, like the, you have if you're going to be covering the game, then no, I'm talking just as a spectator. But um, it depends on how it's being utilized. So if you're going to be covering the game for a media entity. Okay. that has a website that profits off what right. it is that you're putting about that game, then they have those procedures in place that you have to follow. If you're just going to go put something up on Facebook and be like, hey, that Red Sox game was terrible, it, that's totally perfectly fine. But then if you start incorporating that into a website that you are therefore making money on, that's when there starts to be a little bit of a blurred line there because now you, how much of that is you just offering your opinion and then how much of that is you disseminating accounts of the game? Any sports game that you watch on television or listen to on the radio, you'll hear that, that disclaimer, disclaimer. Yeah. where it says, you know, no accounts or disseminations can be released of this game without express written content of Major League Baseball and the Boston Red Sox, which means you can put what you thought about it, but the minute you start putting in that play-by-play, now you've crossed that line. Right. So there's there's a lot of you know little kind of intricacies of that. There's even more intricacies on, on top of that that people don't realize too. Like so for the NFL, I've covered the NFL now for 20 years. I can come back and I can write an article about the the Patriots game, and I can put in the play by play and all that because we have credentials to be able to do that. But then if I want to take audio from my locker room interviews and put it into my story, or if I want to film video and put it up on our Twitter or our Instagram or whatever, all these things have different permissions and different rules and regulations. So, for example, if I wanted to put audio from the game or from the post-game interviews into my story, I can only keep those up on the story for 24 hours, and then I have to remove them. Like, there's there's all... I mean, I don't know if that's changed now because I haven't, all right, so I haven't it, wanted to do that in years. It has but. more to do with the medium that the story's being told on than the story. And it has to do with the rights to the story and how much they're well, controlling the rights, it. Well, the rights to the story on what medium? Well, it, it, it... But no, like, if you were to go and put play-by-play -play of the game on your personal Twitter account, perfectly fine. If you were going to start doing it on a branded Twitter account, that's a little bit of a different yeah, story. Yeah. So there's there's all these little things that just have to be taken into account that eventually will, you know, a lot of this stuff will filter into other parts of how things are covered. Like right now, anybody can go and go to a public event and shoot it and put it on Facebook Live. Eventually, Facebook's going to start having different rules about that. They love having all these live videos because it pushes their Facebook Live platform but eventually they're going to have to be like, oh, and they're they're even starting to do it now. I don't know, Chris, if you've ever run into this problem, but like if you ever go live from somewhere and let's just say, you know, you went to, um, you know, a, a spot where there's a, a, a famous legend and now it is, you know, a, a, a record store or something. And you go in there and you hear the music playing over the speakers like YouTube, uh, uh, Facebook's going to now mute that video. Because yeah. you have licensed music that's not supposed to be in the... Even though you're trying to utilize that platform for spreading your own content, uh, you know, because that was in there, now it's going to be suffering as a result of these rules and regulations. So, the, And I think, I think most of these rules and regulations um, are, are, are strict and can be enforced, right? So if I talk about technically, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Tim, but technically, if I talk about a specific football play, 
um, I'm, I'm violating that. But the idea of it is, is that, <clears throat> and this is where Lauren Coleman comes in. Um, it's the idea that if you're talking about the game, you're promoting the game, which promotes the brand, the brand of the game, which means people are more interested in, in the NFL, right? And, and so in the same way, um, if we have to say who owns the name, the Bridgewater Triangle, it would obviously be Lauren Coleman. But Lauren Coleman doesn't stop people from using the name, the Bridgewater Triangle, um, because he understands that every time that that's out there, it promotes his work and what he's doing and what he's doing now. So there's no, there, there's logically no reason to stop um, because it, it, it helps, <laughs> right? Well, and, so, and to some degree, but you know the the question does come down to when if something does become your you know kind of your bread and butter, your thing, your your intellectual property, then you're getting into a little bit of a different thing. So, yeah, if we wanted to, you know, start up a show and call it the Bridgewater Triangle podcast, you know, nobody can can stop that. But if we, you know, wanted to start utilizing, um, you know, if we started basically trying to take Aaron's logo or if we started trying to take Lauren's writing uh, or if we started to try to take the experiences that other people had and and put them into the, like now you're you are getting into the point where it's not your intellectual property anymore. Now could Lauren Coleman claim that these things are 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 going against his brand that he created, his his intellectual property? I don't know that that would stand up. Well, he kind of borrowed it from Charles Burlitz. Well, and that's the be... thing because he took he and he's he's and you he's know he's, he's, he's yeah he's yeah. open about the fact that it's like oh Bermuda Triangle is popular, so I called it the Bridgewater Triangle. Yeah. And if you look at what's happened, and Chris, you know this just just better than anybody. There's triangles everywhere, and it's yeah. become the new catch-all term for right. any place that has like a window area. Yeah, and and it's it's um, once again. It's in it's in the, the the public forum now, you know, um, and I and I don't I don't think that it can be you can't put that toothpaste back in the bottle. I don't I don't think that the idea of the Bridgewater Triangle because guess what there is a Bridgewater Triangle podcast. There's the there's a Bridgewater Triangle girls. There's the bridge you know there's a team Bridgewater Triangle. I mean all these things do exist, um, and you know you know the the best of us. And I would say most people that I know, it's almost like there's a script out there, right? Like we say, the Bridgewater Triangle was first coined by Lauren Coleman in the late 70s and then in his book, 1983, The Serious Market. Like everyone does that and puts it out there. And I'm not sure if that's part of his acceptance of it. Um, but you, you, we can't go back now and say, I, I don't feel we can't say, um, you know, no, Lauren Coleman owns that. And, and I... Uh, you know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure we have if we've put our stuff out there. If we have even the rights to our own experiences anymore. Yeah, I mean, I I guess I can. I mean, there's a difference that. between doing it right and doing it legal, right? Like, I would I would not want to. It's funny, you know. Intelligence is not currency anymore. Well, you know, I used to I used to look at. You know, the, and I still do. When I open up a book that's nonfiction, I go to the back, right? If there's not a bibliography, 
it puts a moment of pause in my reading of this, being like, okay, maybe this person isn't um, as reliable or isn't as strong of a person as a researcher. And this is friends too, right, that have books that don't have, have bibliographies. Because for me, it's like the more you cite someone, the smarter you sound, the more, the more authoritative you sound by, by saying that you leaned on other people to get it. But I don't think that that's necessarily legal or something that you have to do. To me, it just proves, like, your, your cred. Well, there's a difference between retelling somebody's story and then taking something they've written and just outright using it. That, that's plagiarism. There is a definite difference, well, especially in a legal sense. Here's, here's an idea that throws a monkey wrench into this whole thing. First of all, plagiarism, people make the mistake of thinking plagiarism is a legal claim. It's not. There is no legal definition of plagiarism. Plagiarism is a civil issue uh, that is based on feel. So, yeah, it feels like you probably took too much of something. So it, it you can, and, and we have kind of, in our writing here, we have kind of some best practices in place to make sure that what we write doesn't come across that way. But there's a, a new term that's coming through the content creation world called idea plagiarism, where you, Chris, if you were still running, you know, the, the, the Massachusetts Paranormal Crossroads site, you might see that somebody did a podcast episode about a legend you've never heard of, and then you went and wrote an article about that legend after having heard that podcast, you just plagiarized those people. Even though yeah. you did your own work and looking into it and everything, the idea came about because you heard it from them, idea plagiarism. And that, to me, that's the strangest concept because I don't understand how that how you ever are inspired to write your own stuff about this if you didn't hear it somewhere else first. You wrote these books because you heard about these <laughs> right. stories from somewhere else. So there's this great book uh, that I've leaned on a lot in the last year and a half called um, um, uh, Ghost in the Machine. And it's... Great album. Um, <laughs> it is. Different, unfortunately. Um, but I think maybe I'll listen to Ghost in the Machine while reading Ghost in the Machine. <laughs> and it is modern-day folklore. Right, so modern day examples of of things that were traditionally being told and and they've been amped up for the new generation, right? And um, we, I got the book because we were doing a um, homebound haunted, right? Home haunted because we couldn't go out for COVID, so we were going to do some of these things like Charlie Charlie, and we were going to do um, um, a Midnight Man and all these stuff, and, and a lot of them were in this book. It's almost like a codified version of, of what's been out there and what's gone you know, creepypasta and things like that. The show Evil is literally going chapter, I mean, figuratively, I should say, going chapter by chapter in the last, like, season and a half with this book, right? Like, they're going over all these things, and it's like, well, well you know, okay. And they twist it just enough so that it's a new kind of thing. But it's obvious that they're a huge fan of that book. Characters and stories that are in there keep popping up. The most, the, the best example I can give you is two weeks ago they did um, um, the elevator game, right? And I've never seen the elevator game uh, codified and, and formalized in, in, until this book, right? And we became obsessed over it, which is why my episode this week is going to be on it, right? So I'm stealing from Evil, which is stealing from... 
which is stealing from this. But the idea is, you know, something like um, we we're, and we're going to be reading from the book, but we're going to mention that we're reading from the book when we read it, right? And uh, evil didn't do that, but we're going to be mentioning evil and their plot and how they developed it. And what's the line there? Are we stealing or are we not stealing? You, and you said it perfect. Like, we don't get stuff in our heads and we don't, don't mix and match and create our own thing and put it forth into the world until we are exposed to a legend. And a lot of that happens with us old folks by reading books, you know, and even going to websites, hearing another podcast, being like, wow, that's a really interesting idea. I'm going to take that idea and go somewhere with it. Right. I mean, we're content to be a content generator. You have to be a content consumer. We, we would have nothing. The Bridgewater Triangle wouldn't be alive today if there wasn't a generation of people that took Lauren Coleman's work and said, yeah, but there's more to it than this. And now people are taking that and saying, okay, yeah, but there's more to it than that. And, you know, and I'm not talking about the people that are just rehashing it and taking the credit. I mean the people that are actually out there researching. And yeah. so there is, you know, that, that, that lineage that comes from a legend. And the lineage, like, for example, you know, and, and we can get into this, you brought the Pukwudgie back into the consciousness. It might have been in the public consciousness, you know, not since the 1600s and, you know, the late 1600s after King Philip's War when they started uh, putting aside all of the, the Wampanoag culture because they were so decimated in the war. So you were able to, you know, but you found this through your work and your research, you brought it back and now it's just kind of exploded and it's gone to the point now where even the Pukwudgie is something that people are trying to lay claim to. Um, and it's not even trying to lay claim. So I posted, and I'm not sure if it made it all the way to Spooky South Coast, but I tagged Spooky South Coast in it. Um, and I came across this, well, like close to Halloween last year, where Warner Brothers uh, blocked a image of a puck wedgie on Redbubble. So I think Redbubble is kind of like you make a picture and then you can put it on on cups and you can put it on you know posters and stuff like that for reselling. And this woman uh, drew her own puck wedgie. Uh, looks nothing like. Not only does it not look like uh, a traditional puck wedgie, it definitely doesn't look like the the Harry Potter uh, puck wedgie at all. Um, and Warner Brothers blocked it. So. You know how can how can corporations own it? Right. It would be um, it'd be one thing if it was a if it was a a graphic that was made in promotion of their version of it. So right. if if that was the case, then yeah, they have full rights to to block it. Um, and you know we got into this once with a Google image issue. When we had, remember when we had the content on SpookySouthCoast.com and we had we had people that were basically bloggers for us, but they were writing these different articles and one of our writers took, um, I, I forget the name of the painting and the name of the artist, but the, the famous painting of the demon sitting on the person's chest while they're sleeping. Yeah. And, yeah. For sleep deprivation. Uh, yeah. And somebody took a photo of that painting and used it thinking... Wow, that's a Renaissance era painting. I'm sure it's perfectly fine for me to use this image because it predates the copyrights. And the problem was the photo itself was a Getty Images photo. When they had the copyright on the photo somebody took of the painting. So we got slapped with a, 
a copyright infringement from Getty Images and they wanted to charge us like almost $1,000, uh, my response was, try and get it from us. And, you know, thankfully over 10 years, we haven't heard anything else about it. Now that I've said this, I'm sure I'm going to get another bill. In I was going to say, now they're going to talk about it, right? But the, the, but that's, you know, that just kind of goes how, to, to where this is that, you know, if you backtrace something like backtracing this to uh, Redbubble or backtracing this to the person that put it out there, it's like, okay, you would think that this is all safe and secure. And then this just random copyright claim comes in, which... I, I don't know if I said this at the time, but it's probably just them making an attempt, but it would never yeah. actually hold up in court. Because what they're trying well, to do is... Warner it, Brothers, so do you really want to go up against Warner Brothers? Right, you yeah. Know? Well, do you want to take it's that chance, like, right? It's not like whoever that woman was who approached Aaron. I mean, this is specifically... And, and it's obvious that it was keyworded on the word and not the image right. itself. And then they attacked the image because of it. So this could, be, know, the, this could be that, you know, Warner Brothers said could have said to Redbubble like anything that you have that's tagged this will give you x amount of money to make sure that we get a copyright claim on it like it could have I'm, I'm i'm i know that's a bit of a conspiracy theory but it could have in all actuality it could just be that they have bots that are looking for that term and anytime that term pops up they throw out this copyright claim thinking that that might just kind of stifle the message a little bit and stifle the the use of that term so that only their approved versions of it get out there yeah, and it's you know, how how can you own that? You know, I mean, and, it, and it's it's um, I've I've never laid claim to owning it, you know, uh, and I think this is what happens with a lot of with a lot of this kind of stuff. It's like trying is to that, own a copyright to the word Jesus, if you think or, or or what's his name one uh, owning the word OJ, right? The phrase yeah. OJ. Um, uh, so. You know, oddly enough, I used to do uh, Taekwondo, right? And there was a a rule, and it was an unwritten rule, like it wasn't in the charter of the school or anything like that, that if you had a move that you uh, used to break like wood and then bricks or whatever, um, and you achieved some unspoken level of it, you now owned that move, right? And I'm talking like it could be like a straight – punch if you got to the level where you were a certain belt and you consistently were breaking uh breaking things with that um that other people would have to approach you and ask you if they could use that move to break something at that at that class the next class right and, well, it, and it was a respect kind of thing and it was frowned down upon, and, and what would happen is, is that the people who were doing that move, and I'm not talking like intricate moves, you're, you're, you, you would puff out your chest a little bit, right? And that's kind of how I feel about puck wedgies. Like my, my, my chest gets like kind of like puffed out. My nose goes up a little bit, not down towards people, but up a little bit of like, oh, what you, what, what you saying about puck wedgies? Um, because I feel I have a certain ownership. I would never project that right but i feel as if like i'm protective of it because it's been so much of my work right but in it's, actuality i don't own it it's a it's, it's it's more of a level of like you said protection of pride of you know just kind of um like safeguarding and by the way that what you just mentioned with the taekwondo i mean that happens in professional wrestling all the time that exactly. people have their signature they have their signature move they have their finishing move 
and you don't take somebody else's move. And so like that had happened for a while where, um, you know, uh, uh, a Stone Cold Steve Austin became synonymous with the Stone Cold Stunner. But that was not his original move. That was something that was called the Ace Crusher years ago, and it was even existing before Johnny Ace was using it. And so it became something that, you know, became synonymous with the Stone Cold character. He took this simple little quick move and turned it into his, you know, trademarked finisher, and then nobody else used that for years until, you know, Austin gave his blessing to Kevin Owens to start using that. Right. And so, like, right. that, that is something that kind of does happen in, in, in that world, too. But, you know, that's – it's – you would never not give your blessing to somebody utilizing the puckwudgy term if they were using it correctly. I think everybody that was part of this whole uh, story universally panned J.K. Rowling for using it. And that, this is even before we found out that she's just the worst human being that ever lived on this planet. <laughs> like – all just, of our stuff is down in this house, oddly enough, now, yeah? Yeah, but just, you know, before all of that, this was just, hey, here's this person who has, you know, created this character, which, by the way, she even stole the name from, but, you know, she, she created this character that has her set for life, but now she's gunning on also taking complete ownership of other legends. And as it turns out, you know, seeing that Warner Brothers uh, trademark claim, I wonder how much of that she even had anything to do with. I think it just got to the point where she's, you know, VC Andrews, where there's 25 people writing under her name right. now. As a, you know, you, you open up the door that says J.K. Rowling, and there's, you know, 50 people in there working on computers. And unlike it, the monkeys, yeah, <laughs> they were <laughs> right. on the same now, page. The, inter the interesting thing about the Puck Wedgie is, is that there are entire books, and I used to own them, that talk about where she plucked this from mythology and where she plucked this from mythology and this is a reference to this and and she's made no um she's made no uh, uh claim to not do that right like she's actually taken pride in the fact that you know harry potter calls on a larger mythology um and here are all these examples and she she doesn't hide it in the stories themselves so things are named for but for some reason she's really circled the wagons with this uh, with this puck wedgie idea and been so much more closed off. And that, and that's the really odd part about, you know, her proposed ownership or Warner brothers proposed ownership of the story is, is, you know, she's very freely been like, Oh, like if you look at that name, it's actually the name of some of this person, you know, it's like characters on lost being named after philosophers and scientists, you know, it's a, it's a, it's supposed to make you think about that story and, and, and tap into it. Right. You know, it's it's it's, um, it's not even it's not even a matter of uh, of an homage. It's more of an Easter egg. Right, right. It, and it's and it's this idea of, um, you know, in, in a fancy way we would we would call it. Oh, I, I can't even think of the word now. I don't have to be an English teacher for another two weeks, so I'm not going to think of it. <laughs> but it's when you reference something in your own work. Um, an illusion. It, it, an illusion. Thank you very much. When you when you allude to something in yours, that's part of the famous thing, right? And so to understand the bigger thing, you have to understand, the, you know, what the reference is. It, it's, you know, it, it's it's a really big thing, and it's uh, thousands and thousands of years. But one of the one one of the things that I want to talk about, and I don't know if we've ever talked about this on Spooky South Coast. I think we've talked about it personally, and I'm not going to give all the details of this story. 
Um, but there was a time where informally um, Charles Robinson was trying to block uh, or, or at least get money for um, a documentary that was being make and made that referenced the redheaded hitchhiker. And he was claiming ownership of that. Uh, and it was really like, whoa, that's, that's out of, that, that's out of left field, but I like what, what, how, how you can't own that. But he was very firm on the idea that this was something that he was the first person to write about it. Um, people were, were taking his work and, and, and putting it out there and transforming it and all the stuff like that. And, and now that they were doing, now that they were making money off of it, that money should trickle down to him. Which when you think about it, he supposedly wrote about that story because he heard it from other people who had that experience. So he didn't really own the story. He might have owned the original reporting on the story. But that doesn't mean that you own the story. Right. And then the other part of it is, you know, we, we've come to find out that those those legends have existed since, you know, covered wagons were going down those roads. Right. And so it's, it, it, which is, and the, also the interesting thing is, is that even if you wanted to say the phrase, by that time it had really switched to the redheaded hitchhiker from the redheaded family. So it's, it, it wasn't even um, Robinson terminology that was what people were traditionally or were newly re referring to it. And, and it was, you know, it was interesting. And I think, I'm not sure if it comes from the, um, the, the, the science background that Robinson had in terms of being anthropologist as opposed to a folklorist that he felt that ownership of it. Um, but I remember being really taken aback by that in that, well, you know, you reference all of these other things in your writing to, to people own those, you know, and it's, 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 I don't know. It's, it's something to, to me, it's, when it's out there, it, it becomes usable it is the best way. And the best of us uh, call, call back to what we, we, where we got it. Yeah. If you can have a fair amount of um, sourcing and a fair amount of, if it, if it can be done, then I think that it needs to be done. Well, history if, belongs to everyone. Well, so if you can only trace a story back to one source cite that source yeah. if you you know it's kind of like the way that we look at uh you know a news story if something's happening if one person reports it you have to say you know abc6 is reporting cnn is reporting but if yeah. multiple outlets have it then you can say multiple outlets are reporting but you still have to point out that multiple outlets are reporting it so you if there's a story that goes around you know this this was a very a very common discussion with uh, a lot of people in the early days of my work in the paranormal and, and Chris, it was, it was, you know, we had conversations about this too. There was a local writer by the name of Edward Lodi out of Wareham. Uh, well, mm -hmm. he's from Wareham, but he moved to Middleborough and uh, he had his own publishing company. And what he would do is he would go and he would find these old books from the 16 and 1700s and he would, just republish the stuff from those books but then he'd write like an intro to it or whatever and would put that out there and would sell it and people like well yeah. you don't actually write these books you just compile this information 
Um, but he he gave it the credit, and it wasn't copywritten because it was before the copyright laws existed. So he was able to do it. Um, but it was still it was single sourced. So he had he, he, you know, he was able to cite where he got it from. And so now, if anybody else writes that, they'll single source that too. But if it becomes common knowledge, and you know, it's in fifty books, well, then you don't have to cite it anymore. But you still should. From a responsibility standpoint, say As found in there are multiple books that discuss this, and you know this is what what is the kind of the um, the uh, the conglomerated story of all of those different versions. There's, of a, it. Yeah. there's a Latin term in scientific pepper and papers at all, right? Yeah. And yeah. and and the, the the issue with writers now is that they look at it as. If they saw it in 50 places, then that just means everybody owns it. And that's not that's not the right way to report it. The other the other issue too is there is a there's some degree of a fear of citation because people don't want to make it seem like they are pulling this information from somewhere else, which I can't understand at all. I can't understand that at all. But it, it happens. Yeah. You know, let's I like, would love to get I would love to get your opinion on this because this is something I run into quite a bit, <clears throat> and I don't know if you've ever spent time on this website, but it's called Backpackerverse, right? And back, have you ever been on the site at all? Or no, no, I'm not familiar. No, so it's it's re, it's a really great um, <laughs> it's a really great resource for stories that that are absolutely untrue, um, and it's it's usually they publish like the most fantastical, unable to corroborate, uh, true experience of a legend. But then they'll also talk about the legend. And so I've used this many times as the spark for my research in terms of, all right, that story I probably don't believe has happened, but there's a legend out there. And then I go and I research the legend. And usually in doing that, I find that, you know, they're so far off the mark, but they're my spark, right? Um, and yet I still constantly reference them as a source because if it hadn't been for that, I never would have found the rabbit hole to begin with. Sure. And, and how, um, how hard is that to do? How hard is it to say I was inspired by something I saw on this website? You know, and I think even a, a site that it's a great site, it, you know, but it, it's clearly some of the stuff is unverifiable. I'll say, I won't say fake. I'll say unverifiable. And it's, um, and they don't reply. Like sometimes I try to follow up with them and be like, hey, I'd love to, you know, where did you get this information? Can I talk to the person? And it's, you know, it, that's the dead end. That's the stop of it. And so it's really hard to track that legend sometimes further back than that. Are people experiencing things now because they read it on that site or because they, or at least telling that story or is it touching to something deeper? And so it's a constant, you know, does Backpackerverse now own those stories? <laughs> you know, and, and am I obligated to inform them that I'm including one of their stories in my book? Well, I'm, I mean, I, here's my issue. I, I just opened up the website. I'm taking a look at it. Um, and maybe you can tell me, you know, because I'm just looking at this real quick while we're on the air. Is this all put out by one particular writer? Is this put out by a team of writers? It looks like it's a, a team of writers, but that team of writers is like a close knit team of writers because, because here, they do have different states here is where i take issue with this there are no credited bylines to any of the writers yeah yeah 
And I'm sorry, like 90% of the time if I see that on a site, I just dis I just dismiss everything on the site. Because if I can't, yeah, if so there's no accountability to who the author was and how I can reach out and, and trace back to them and, and, and hold them accountable for anything, then I just look at it as a, like this is this is a blog and I'm taking everything as being probably made up. And, and yet in the realm of um, in the realm of folklore, what they put out there becomes part of the narrative of that location. And you can't ignore it. But you can't verify it, and it's in this really weird, murky – you know, another really good example for what I do, and, and I know that it's better um, in, in other places, but, you know, uh, here we have Charlie Carlson who wrote Weird Florida, right? I was going to say Weird Massachusetts, but that's, that's a different guy. Um, <laughs> and it's so much of uh, folklore about places gets – brought back to to this book right and charlie carlson has passed and when he passed that those these mysterious files <laughs> that he supposedly had that some people say they've seen some people uh you know say that like no that he got that from me it's gone right like his sons don't share it his son doesn't share it and so when people when people say something, they, they end it with that, right? And that, that kind of thing exists other places as well. Like we don't have, well, wink, wink, nod, nod. We don't have access to, to Charles Robinson's stuff, right? So anything that's, that's in, in New England ghost files um, can only be traced back to him, right? Uh, because we don't have his first, we don't have the, the written records of where he got those stories. And so... Um, how can we possibly verify it past the point of him? So we have to look at the integrity of those those sites, even though we realize that they're not the primary source. Right. Uh, it, it's a it's a rough thing to do. Uh, I can say if you ever want good stories about legends and and ghosts and Bigfoot and UFOs and things that are are credited to writers, just go to ultimateunexplained.com. Had to sneak in that little <laughs> plug there, but we don't we don't talk enough well, about it here. But ultimateunexplained.com is a site that, you know, is created by Town Square Media, which owns and operates this station. And uh, we also have that site as part of our, you know, national group of websites. But we put the same types of, you know, uh, um, guidelines on reporting those stories on that site as we do reporting a new story on this site. So, you know, there is there is some accountability there. So just wanted to sneak in that plug. But, Chris, speaking of plugs, we only have a few minutes left. Tell us what you're working on these days. Oh, wow. Well, of course, I have Tripping on Legends, uh, the podcast. Um, you can go to trippingonlegends.com or facebook.com backslash trippingonlegends. Um, being on Midnight FM, we try to do a show every week. We're trying to get back into the swing of things. Um, but we're trying to put content out live. Uh, on Tuesdays at least every week, if not a full show every week. Um, right now, I, uh, what do you call it, Florida, Haunted Florida Love Stories is um, is out. Um, it's probably the book, no offense, Tim, the book I'm most proud of, <laughs> <laughs> um, in that it is a book of 100% uh, legend. Uh, there's only one or two mentions of something personal which kind of backs something up. Uh, and I'm just finishing up my my next book, uh, which is Haunted Ocala, which hopefully will be out like this time next year, which is I'm finding really hard because it's a mix of the two, um, which used to seem a lot easier to be able to mix legends with people's firsthand experiences. 
uh, and I'm finding it hard. It's a different mindset in the writing of it, which is kind of like what we've talked about tonight. And, and I want to put this out there to Spooky South Coast listeners because I'm also working on a new project called um, Whistling Past the Cemetery, which is documenting um, cemetery rituals from across the country and beyond. So any kind of uh, legend trip that your local uh, cemetery is involved in, you know, you go to you go to a, a certain cemetery and you knock on the headstone and a woman is supposed to appear. Anything that's kind of a story like that, I would love for you to share it with me because I'm compiling hopefully dozens and dozens of these and putting them together in a thematic book. Just remember to not include the local one here that people I'm, I'm not, talk about. I, I'm not sure if you listen to the show where I where I don't mention it, um, and I had uh, I had about two dozen listeners, which is probably the extent of my listenership anyway. Um, <laughs> message me after the show, being like, "Tell me what it is. Tell me what it is. Tell me what it is." And I'm like, "I'm not I'm not telling you what it is until you know someone that we both know and love was like, "Is it this place?" And I'm like, "I will neither confirm nor deny." But you, but you know, you your pet sounds like a good candidate. Yeah, so definitely. But- even though that's an inspiration, um, I will not be mentioning that one. That, that was that was a visit that um, you know started off angry, but definitely turned uh, compassionate and, uh, and and certainly changed the way that I talk about that particular place. Uh, now, if only that stupid only in your state dot com could follow suit, but you know they refuse anyway. That's a whole different story. You want to talk about stealing stories. Um, but anyway, that's uh, we'll save that for a different time because we're just starting. The last couple episodes here, we're just starting to sound like the Grumpy Old Men podcast, although Stephanie was on, so, you know, not all grumpy old men. Grumpy young girls, yeah, too. I was not grumpy. I said we need to embrace it. Remember I that? know, I know. But so I'm just, still young. But, uh, and I'm also happy being the grumpy old man. All right, Chris, well, thank you for joining <laughs> us tonight. This has been a very fun discussion. Oh, you kids. And, and <laughs> we'll talk again soon. Take care. <laughs> I have a good one, man. Talk to you later. And that'll do it for tonight's show. Uh, We'll return next week with another edition of the program. Until then, for Matt, for Matt, for Stephanie, I'm Tim. We want to, oh, by the way, to email us, spookycrew at spookysouthcoast.com with your thoughts. Uh, Stay spooktacular.